is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And I always put my team up to finding good stuff on the web, a cool video that no one saw or you should have seen but didn't. Whatever. Greatest uh, greatest and funniest column of the day. Um, just a, a cool new artist. And today, uh, Jesse comes at me and says, you got to see this video. This thing's great. And it's from Bibb County, Georgia. And we broadcast here from Oxford, Mississippi. So we love stories from small town America. And by the way, I was telling a friend the other day, and I grew up around New York. Listen to my accent. This does not exactly sound like a guy who grew up in Oxford, Mississippi. This one comes out of Bibb County, Georgia. And there's a program for troubled youth from ages 9 to 17 years old called Consider the Consequences. And it helps them stay in school, graduate, and begin a successful career. The teens experience what it's like to be in jail. They put on a jumpsuit placed in a cell, and they meet with a judge. Well, Bibb County Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin brings a courtroom full of Consider the Consequences participants to tears, and all she does is tell them the truth. Stop acting like you're trash and putting pictures of yourself on the Internet. Stop being disrespectful to your parents. Care about your future. Be somebody. Anybody can be nothing. It doesn't take anything to be nothing. Be something. Do you understand what I'm saying? Care about yourselves. The fact that you're shedding tears means you want to be better and you want to do better. Do it. The only person stopping you is you. Do better than what you've been doing. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? I don't expect to ever see the three of you all back in my courtroom like this. One day I want you to come tell me, Judge Coleman, when I got gray in my hair, because I can't even color anymore because it's so much gray, I want you to come tell me, Judge Coleman, I graduated from college. You might not remember me, but back in 2016, you said something to me to make a difference. I am sick and tired of seeing people who look like you and I come in my courtroom and I have to sentence them to prison. And then you hear them fussing on TV about African Americans being in the prison system. Well, guess what? If you don't do what it takes to go there, you won't be a part of it. You already know the game. If you know they come in your community more than they do in other communities, then guess what? You've got a heads up. So that means you've got to do what's right, right? Don't let me see you here again. Young men, let me tell you something. I raised a young man as a single parent by myself. I know all the stuff that comes up for you all. I know it all. Been there, done that. Because my son, Mr. Cool, graduated Mr. Mr. Whatever his high school. You know how they have kings and queens. He's the king of high school. So you can imagine. I've gone through every experience. Because if you're popular enough to be voted Mr. Um, he went to Mount Sales. Mr. Mount Sales, then you, you know everybody. I'm going to tell you what I told him. Son, I know you're cool and all that. I get it. I know that. I know you're just a man. But what I'm going to tell you, you know I'm a little crazy. So don't come up in this house with any mess. So when folks come at you with dope, this gang stuff, um, let, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you what I told him. Papa, man, you know my mom crazy. I got to go. I, I just can't, you know, she, she crazy. And his friends know I was, you know, I don't mind going there. And I don't know if your moms are like me. I don't know if they tell y'all this is the real deal, buddy. You better get it together. But I'm telling you, if your moms don't, don't say that, consider me your surrogate mom. <laughs> don't you come up in here. I'm sick of seeing young men who look like you all. And more prevalent young men 
Men who look like you, white and black all together, coming in this court system, going to jail for something stupid. Get yourselves together. Stop this. Why would you want to be another statistic? Do you want to be another African-American male in a jail cell? Does it, do any of you all want, is that what you want for your lives? Come on. Somebody raping you in the middle of the night, and there's nothing you can do but just lay there. Because guess what? Everybody got to get their turn. So it's your turn, because you're the new meat on the block. That's the reality. And these officers standing here can tell you that even happens locally. I hadn't even asked them, but I know it does. That happens locally in jail. So imagine if you go down the road. Jackson has something for you. That's where you have to go in and do the intake when you go down the road. They've got something for you. And guess what? As big and bad as you all think you've been, they got something for you. Believe you me, those inmates have something for you. So you need to get some gold. Now, you didn't raise your hand, young man, about having a gold. You've got to get a gold. Counter, we got to get We can't have a counter. We got to get one. Because I'm telling you, if you don't make a goal for yourself, society's going to make one of these two options a goal. And I'm serious. I'm not telling you all anything different than I didn't tell my son. But you don't have to make a decision that you're going to do something different. And don't use your family situation as an excuse. You hear me? Don't use that as an excuse. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know where you live. But don't use it as an excuse. Anything either of you all are going through, somebody else went through who's successful now. My mom made below the poverty level. I, she was a single mom, and my dad didn't help a whole lot. He did the bare minimum. But I didn't use that as a reason why I couldn't go to college. Guess what? If your parents don't have money, you can go to college almost free. That's the beauty of it. If you don't want to go to college, get a skill, but you've got to do something. I didn't allow my son to use the fact that his father wasn't in the house with us as an excuse. I didn't allow that, because what I told him is you have everything you need, because if you needed something else, you have it. And that's what you all got to know. Everything you need, you have. Young man, do you hear me? Everything you need, and look at you got a polo shirt on that's sitting here because you messed up like that. Somebody cared enough about you to get that shirt. How old are you? And all this alternative school mess. This is ridiculous. See, you're already labeling yourself. When you go to alternative school, that's on your record. People see that. But even if you got to be there, change the course. Start being different. So they can have attach something different to your name. Anybody can do nothing. Why would you want to do nothing? Anybody can do and be nothing. And that's Judge Verda Colvin. We'll pop that on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. Get yourselves together, she chided these boys and girls. Why do you want to be another statistic? Is that what you want with your lives? We need more voices like Judge Verda Colvin, white, black, Hispanic. We all need this. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Thanks, Jesse, for digging this up.
is our American stories. And we love to goof off here from time to time. We love to take things seriously. The life of Louis Armstrong, he died uh, on this day in history. And take a listen. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our interview with Terry Teachout is just terrific. He wrote the book, the book to read about Louis Armstrong. It's called Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. He also wrote Armstrong at the Waldorf, a three-man play in which, well, I can't even describe what you see because an actor plays several parts, and it's just a work of art. And Terry is one of the great writers in this country. And we love talking to the folks at the Wall Street Journal. And that brings us to our weekly discussion with Heidi Mitchell, where we talk about a burning question of the week, the burning question. And today's subject, can adults grow taller? Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. (laughs) It's the question on everyone's mind. Well, you know what's on our mind? We're looking around and and all of us are talking. Let's see. We all know that you can grow sideways as you get older. (laughs) We all know you can expand. We all know you can actually contract. You can get shorter. And so actually, you know, when, when, well, when, what prompted this, first of all, Heidi? So it was funny because, you know, usually we, things are in the zeitgeist or we're talking about them in the newsroom. This one came about because a reporter for the Wall Street Journal had posted on her Facebook that she just came back from her doctor's appointment and she had grown an inch. And there were a lot of responses. I was trying to find it for you. I couldn't find it. It's too buried on her. She had got a lot of responses, and there were heated discussions in the newsroom. So they, they said, okay, you need to find the answer to this. Can it happen? So I go to the, the, the kookiest doctors I could find are always at the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic. And they, so the Mayo Clinic answered this question. It was pediatric orthopedic surgeon Todd Milbrand, who only specializes in the plates between your bones, that the end of your bones that connect your bones, they're called fizzies, and he specializes in these plates. So if anybody has an answer, he's got it. it. Right. He's got it. And so, by, by the way, part of your job is finding the people who can answer the question. So in the end, you're you're a person who is like an you're like a digger, an archaeologist of human beings who can then get you the answer you need. It's interesting you say that because I have a degree in anthropology. Oh, well, there you go. So maybe huh. I'm putting it to you. I think you are. Now your parents, you can finally <laughs> tell your parents, see, Thank you goodness. see? <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You're going to dig up bones, kid? What are you going to do? Right. No, I'm <laughs> going to dig up doctors in Minnesota. Exactly right. So what did Dr. <laughs> Todd Milbrandt of the Mayo Clinic tell you? So he was very clear cut. He said, your friend is wrong. She did not grow, and he had a lot of reasons for why. There are, first of all, and this is really depressing, I'm only, I'm like five, two and a half on a really good day, and I'm still measuring halves, which shows how yep. sad that is. But it, it is sad. he said that doctors, um, that doctors' scales are notoriously inaccurate. So there's that, first of all. So one doctor says you're five, three. The other says you're five, three and a half. Okay, so we already have a little bit of discrepancy. Then my favorite thing um, is that, uh, I don't know if I should say this to the end because this is my favorite bit, but that in the morning you're taller than you are at night. Why? Because gravity and turgor. So in the morning all your wonderful, sparkly, well-slept cells are filled with water and they're as big and stretched out as they can be. And they're tiny, but there's billions of them and all together it could add up to maybe a half an inch. So in the morning, if you go usually at 4 o'clock to the doctor, but then you went 
Then you went at um, at 9 a.m., maybe you're a half inch taller from now on. And so that that's a piece of it. But what else is going on that he could have so quickly and dispositively said, absolutely not? How old is your? How old was this? A friend of yours who said she grew a half inch. How old was she? So she's. I think she's in her forties. Okay. Um, she might be even older. But um, so he said, okay, without exception, you your body. If you're a boy, you grow from like twelve to sixteen, and if you're a girl. You grow, so it's during puberty, right? Puberty extends, but it doesn't extend past <clears throat> past 21 is like kind of the far reaches. And I remember my father saying that he grew in college. He's in college at 21, right? Yep. So you just, you're done. So he said, so fizzies are these things at the end of the growth plates that are at the end of your bones. There's what they're what are allowing the stretching and growing. And they, they harden, they turn into regular bones when you're done with, um, with puberty. So they're just not there anymore. So you literally can't grow. You could break your leg and reset it or insert a rod. And I'm sure there are people that have done this. Um, he said, you wouldn't want to, but you can. Um, it'd probably be hard to find a doctor who would do it, but you can do this and that can make you, it will make you not grow, but it will make you taller. The only reason why you would actually grow is if you suffer, you have basically a, a pituitary condition and you have essentially gigantism and your body just keeps growing. You're, this growth hormone, this IGF-1 growth hormone supposed to stop being produced after puberty keeps growing. And I remember there were a few celebrities that had that, like their heads were rather large. You, they looked a little um, like they didn't look like they were um, proportionate, um, but it, this, this pituitary condition it's like a tumor if you don't get rid of it it will kill you right so if so you're if you're growing good. if you're yeah, growing past a certain age see a doctor yeah. is what you're you saying you might want to get that that thyroid checked out or that pituitary checked out you so would endocrine abnormalities right yeah, so I'm okay now now i'm like i maybe want to get on those moon boots and hang upside down but i'm not gonna um i'm not gonna hope for a couple in, extra inches <laughs> no you know you would think though heidi at some point that modern science especially as it relates to athletics and so many other things. And just people who are really so short that it's debilitating and psychologically, you would think somebody would be working on something that could advance these fizzies and spur their uh, extra stimulation past a certain age with stem cell, with with something. Is there any science on this space right now? Well, for pubescent kids, there are. So, in fact, I even have a cousin who went through this. But if you – his grandfather was like four eight. His mother was four eight. His parents were very small, and his so you know you have a range that you can reach. And his range was like four eight to five two or something like that. So even at best case scenario, he was going to be not very tall. And for girls, maybe it's a little bit easier. For boys, there's a social stigma, so that can be difficult. I mean, if you have dwarfism, that's a different thing. But if you're just going to be short. Um, so they, so you can take these, um, IGF one hormones during puberty, they're in shot forms, take them, I think every day Mm -hmm. and you can, you will reach the maximum of your potential. You're probably not going to be taller, but if you're going to be between, you know, four, eight and five, five or whatever, you'll hit five, five. So actually this cousin of mine is a, he's short, but not too short. He's almost average. And, um, if he, uh, and then he married a girl who was really tall. And their kids are ginormous. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I think he, they bred the gene out. I mean, it's all the cosmetic, right? His yeah. genes still say that he's uh, 
that he's short, but his kids don't know that. Right, and that's good for everybody. And and by the way, when you said you were five two and a half, and you said that's sort of sad, and I said it was, that's someone who always says he's five ten and a half. So I yeah, I know really? just how that's pathetic that can be, Heidi. I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's just where I am. I, I, I for a long time I lied and said I was six feet tall, and then my wife just kept hitting me. So now I'm five ten and a half, which is what I actually am. Um, is, is it, you know what makes you grow? You put a list in your shoe. Oh, I got to try that. Got those those yeah, but those Prince heels will just get me in trouble. So those Kim Jong Il Il heels will hurt me. Style. Yeah, Tom Cruise style. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I'll let my wife yeah. know that was your idea too, Heidi. She'll never have to know. Just call them orthopedic. I will. I will. Is there anything <laughs> adults can do to change our own height? Well, you know, interestingly, you know, yoga, they say that yoga practitioners say that it elongates your spine, and it does, but it's temporary. I mean, you know how good it feels when you hang from like a door jam or yes. you're at your gym. It feels good. It does stretch out your spine. But ultimately, gravity's really, really strong. Gravity's going to win. So there's really nothing. What if we all just feel. hung upside down forever? I mean, then, then then no one would know. Gravity would lose. And well, I don't or know if gravity would. That. If we just sat, no one would know that we were even short or tall. That's true. No one would know and no one would care. Well, Heidi, as always, can adults grow taller? Uh, Great topic for today, and I'm sure folks will be enjoying this. And by the way, enjoy the trip to Fiji. Send pictures. I'm I'm going to Akron, and I'm I'm staying at a Red Roof Inn right across the street from a great bowling alley. I know you're going to be jealous, and I won't send you pictures, I promise. I'll watch you on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Look for that, Heidi. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Heidi Mitchell, as always, from the Wall Street Journal, The Burning Question. And today, it's Can Adults Grow Taller? More after these messages. for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak, the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages compared to 28% with traditional counselors. Every week, Deb joins us for storytelling about marriage, and today we're going to start with a story about vacations. 
And when we think about vacations, we often think of family vacations or guy trips or girl trips. But we're about to bring you a story about a different and rather unique kind of vacation. It's brought to us by the terrific website IBelieveInLove.com and by their contributor Carrie Schmidt, a wife and a mom of two daughters in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Carrie. One evening, when I must have looked pretty haggard, my husband said some of the most loving words I've ever heard. What if I take a week of vacation from work and you go stay with your parents so you can have a break, he asked. Really? You think that could work? I responded as I racked my brain trying to decide for myself. I think you should go on vacation. You haven't had a break for over three years. There's always going to be a reason not to do it. If we can possibly pull it off, we should try, he encouraged. That was all the prompting I needed. For the next two months, I planned and daydreamed about how wonderful it would be to decide for myself what I wanted to do with my days. After pouring over the calendar, we settled on the five-day break just before Christmas. How did the break go? Well, as you may have suspected, we got some great stories out of it. The first text I received from my husband, who rarely cooks, read, Adventures with Daddy Day One, set off the smoke detector trying to cook eggs. Others included, Do we have a lemon zester? What do you use to grease a pan? The kitchen is starting to smell a little funky. When do the dishwashing fairies normally come? We're really low on milk. Where is the best place to get more? There were also multiple pictures of the baby falling asleep in various parts of our house because Daddy hadn't recognized she was tired and needed a nap. However, my favorite story is from day four, when he answered the phone with a grumpy, hello. What's wrong? I asked. I'm locked in the bathroom trying to get a moment of peace, and then the phone rings. I erupted in laughter. I can't make this up. He then proceeded to direct our three-year-old through her chore list and identify that the 13-month-old was playing in the dog's water bowl and convinced her to stop all through the locked door. Impressive and hilarious. My side of the break was very relaxing. I went to bed when I was tired, woke up when I was ready, watched a movie, ran some errands, read and did some sewing that was on my list. The biggest change was getting to operate on my own timeline, and it was wonderful. My husband also gave me a beautiful card filled with words of appreciation and a spa treatment for me. I felt so loved and so encouraged. So why did he decide to take on two little girls and a dog by himself? Because he recognized that I needed a break. He saw me. He got it. The 24-7 job was wearing me out, and I needed some time to refresh. He chose to selflessly contribute to the solution. When we see someone in need, we can respond in one of two ways. We can ignore the problem and hope it goes away, or we can contribute to the solution. Which is more loving? That's kind of obvious, but sometimes it's difficult to choose to love those who are closest to us. We can take them for granted instead of setting our own desires aside. I'm sure he would have rather completed some of the projects on his list with that time off work. 
but he selflessly chose to put my needs ahead of his wants. It will be interesting to see how these five days in my shoes changes the dynamics of our family going forward. I know I will be excited for another mommy vacation if the opportunity is ever presented again. In the meantime, this has also helped me reflect more on my husband's wants and needs and form a plan of action to try to help him achieve this. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Who is your family's weakest link, and how can you help them get stronger? Wow, and then we're going to be bringing in Deb in a second, but we're all looking at each other going, oh, man, I hate this guy. He's making us look bad. But I think, uh, well, you're laughing, Deb, because you know, and I think men listening to this right now are going, oh, I know that's the right thing to do. I know that's the decent thing to do, and I haven't done it. So, Deb wow. Wolniak, you join us now. What do you think of this? This is just, frankly, it's just it's so good, and it's so so, so decent. And how many guys do you know that would do something like this? And what what does a guy learn from this, Deb? Well, this is this is good. I appreciate your heartfelt, you know, concern, like reflecting on your life. But let's just flip it around. You might have women listening to this that go, I wish my husband could hear this story because this is what I need. And how do I bring this up in a sensitive way? You know, because I don't want to put him on the spot. And yep. I'd like this to be a gift and not a demand. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm going to throw this out to the women that are in that boat as well. Um, if you are that person, I want you... Um, to do this for your husband, even though you feel you might need it. I know it sounds like a stretch, but believe me, it will come back around. Um, there might be something that he's been working really hard at as well, and he's kind of at the end of his rope. Give him the opportunity, even if it's a day, you know, it doesn't have to be a week, and let him do something special. Maybe give him a gift card to go to a sports store or um, give him time to just go fish. He may have the equipment. He just needs to get his worms and just go out and just sit in a boat and be with his thoughts. But as you do that, you will trigger that um, example. And he, if he's smart, will connect the dots and say, hey, I want to do the same for you. Now, for those husbands who haven't done it yet, don't feel guilty. Now is your opportunity. I think you should take advantage of it. If it's not the mommy vacation what does fit into your schedule that may let her go with a friend to get a cup of coffee and come back? Some folks can do a micro vacation that might be just, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of while maybe some young moms need to come back and breastfeed. So just getting that time alone is extremely helpful. And you know what's fun about couples is there's a lot of times this resiliency. You heard this lady, three years and she hasn't had a break? Oh, my gosh. So she had a week, she came back refreshed, but you also heard how she's not going not to just sit for three years. She's going to proactively schedule time with her husband so that he has that opportunity and vice versa. I think you need to plan that into your family structure in order to create healthy space for your heart and mind to rest so you can be the best parent and the best spouse or significant other. So that's actually really encouraging. I like the story. I love the story, Deb. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little about foster care because it's National Foster Care Month. And so what happens in a family, in a marriage, when you make this decision to go down the foster care route? Because it's a big one. And it's like the adoption route itself. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all of our Marriage on the Mind segments. Go to the Top Fix button, take a look. All of our This Days in History, right down the line. There have got to be about 85 of them now. And our Marriage on the Mind segments run the gamut, from drugs to pain 
to long-term marriages to, well, just about everything we've covered. And we're going to continue to do so with Deb Wolniak right after these messages. Our Marriage on the Mind segment continues. And now we continue with our Marriage on the Mind segment, and we love to hit topics that cover just about every aspect and dimension of a marriage. By the way, I was talking to a friend the other day who had just, they had just lost a child and uh, to, a, to a, a really tragic uh, and a, a car accident. And, and the marriage, I don't know how strong it is, actually. And we were talking about the movie Ordinary People, and I think they're heading down a bad course, Deb, um, because as you know, and we've talked about often, tragedy can often show fissures in a marriage. And if you remember that movie with Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore, they had lost their son in a boating accident. And the movie was all about that marriage and how they handled it. And if you remember, the marriage didn't make it. Um, uh, it actually tore them apart. And uh, just, you know, just a second before we dig into the, the adoption, because I think often this can happen with adoption too. You think it's an easy road the child comes in, the new child, and there's an existing family, and it's not always an easy road in adoption, and it's not always an easy road losing that child either. Just talk about stress as it relates to marriage, Deb, because in the end, these are stress events in the end. Mm-hmm. So one of the stressors you mentioned were the shock kind of stressors that are those surprises that no one is expecting that are tragedies. And then the other one is a more of a planned stressor where you do your best you can as a parent to take calculated, a meaningful relationship building risks, knowing that no child is perfect and no marriage is perfect. But in, in both cases, there are levels of stress that can affect a marriage. Uh, one thing in, in those cases that has a common thread is I've always, always said, build a team of people around you that are going to support you through the process. If it's on the grieving side, please get involved with the Grief Share program or uh, community-based programs that are going to help you transition through the waves of grief and loss. And you need to honestly process those and go through that in order to continue um, to build your relationship because it does kind of create that explosion hole in your heart and you have to try to rediscover love again. In the other case, you're building up the opportunity of growth of new love, almost like a tree um, continues to sprout a branch. You know, you want to graft that branch into your family tree, and there's some beautiful opportunities there, even though sometimes it can be hard. Yep, indeed. So let me let me do this. We're going to be talking about a group called Faith Bridge, and it's a Christian foster, foster care agency 
that approaches churches about how many children need foster care homes in their local area. And they've had some pretty remarkable success, Deb. And one of the reasons why is they have a sort of unique community of care model where folks surround the foster family with tutoring help, babysitting, mentoring. Like you said there, the team. It's a team approach, and, and you need to do these things. Nationally, by the way, almost 50% of the foster families in this country drop out every year because they feel overwhelmed. And today we meet Ryan and Stephanie Martin, who became a foster family through FaithBridge and their story. And like so many of these stories, was driven by the heart of the mother. My wife had had a, it had been a passion of hers for a number of years, and she had actually been praying for me um, to, to just consider doing something. And we were introduced to FaithBridge through some friends, attended an orientation, and I was... I was actually wrecked by the message, and so we collectively, although my wife, before I was ready, uh, she was ready long before me, and she, she prepared me through her prayer, and uh, we, we at that point decided that this was something that we needed to do collectively as a family. Well, I've always had a heart for children who do not have a home. Um, really, from since I was a teenager, I really feel like God just laid that on my heart. Um, But through the years, we had our biological children, and our home was full, or so we thought. But that just never left. That feeling never left that God gave me. And um, so I did. I started mentioning it to Ryan, and he said, we're good. We're full. Um, But I really just spent some time praying for that because I, I, I told the Lord I either I have this tug on my heart, and I either, um, you've either got to change the tug, or you've got to help my husband join me in that. And so, over time, that's what he did. And these were clearly people of faith, but my goodness, secular folks listening, I I, I can't tell you how many times I've bumped into this in my life, Deb. One person wants a small family, one wants a big family. One (laughs) wants to adopt kids, and one doesn't. So, let's just say Stephanie continued to want to have these adopted kids in her home, and Ryan didn't. How do we negotiate these things, Deb, and how do we walk through these these things? And this is what I meant about how sometimes adoption can create a stress. And by the way, Ryan might not have known that Stephanie wanted to adopt. Stephanie might not have even known she had wanted to adopt when they first married. These things just come to folks. How, how does this create stress in the marriage? How do they negotiate this if, for instance, the couples aren't on the same page on something this big? Yeah, I'll tell you what, um, this form of bringing children into a family, whether they're of your own or foster care or adoption, is a big life-changing decision. It is a lifetime commitment, except for those that are in foster care to help with transitional living for a child that might be in transition and going back to either their birth parent or um, a new family. But um, one of the things that will help you navigate is to not only continue to research and make yourself the best, most aware potential parent or new parent, um, if that's the case. But in a lot of cases, as you check out agencies, they provide wonderful social workers or experts, counselors, et cetera, who uh, their job is to educate you and help qualify you um, to make sure you're ready for that transition, um, offer some continued classes, and maybe even some counseling just to make sure that you both are, are ready and on the same page. With things like finances, children, et cetera, even getting married, I just want to encourage everybody to try to be on that same page. You're not going to succeed if you have a foundation in your family that's split 
It's almost like building a house on an uneven foundation. Every decision after that is just going to be very difficult. So for those of of faith, I strongly encourage you to pray. This is something that, you know, you need to discern God's heart, and um, he'll know your heart. He'll know your desire. And I'm just going to encourage you guys to come together, who's ever listening to this, come together in prayer, seek wise counsel, really study the benefits and the challenges of the decision you're making. Also, if you have kids currently in the house, um, talk to that expert about birth order and ages. Talk about your family's environment. Where will that child or children stay within the home? Do they have their own space that they'll feel invited into that they can, you know, kind of work on, you know, things when they need to be quiet themselves? Or is it more of a common area? Are they sharing a room with a brother or sister that um, is currently in the family? So, you know, there's a lot of questions there and they do need to be answered well. Um, the, the neat thing is, as you come down that road and together you decide this is a good solution for our family, you're going to be amazed at how wonderful it is to have the opportunity to pour into that child's life, especially for foster parents, because this child has probably gone through a trauma that they didn't expect, didn't want, and yet somebody's taking the time to reach out to them. And this could be a critical juncture for someone who is looking at the world like, I don't know what to expect anymore. I'm scared. And you could be that, you fill in the gap on not only loving that child, but in some cases even adopting that child. And what a huge compliment to that child, that you would love them um, in such a way that you gave them the space to not only go through this process, but to feel love again and attach to a family. So that's a big deal. There is no doubt it's a big deal. And Ryan and Stephanie, it sounds like, are on the same page. And you say it over and over again that if the couple's not on the same page on these big decisions, trouble lurks, problems lurk. So foster care, uh, being foster parents, being adoptive parents, um, these are big, big decisions together. And Deb, uh, just quickly, you know, this is a, this touches you personally, this space. Uh, talk mm-hmm. about that and why. Yeah, so um, my husband and I, Bob, adopted two children from Russia, ages two and four. And believe it or not, they're now 15 and 17. So we've had quite a few years and seasons with them. But even approaching that first moment when we said, hey, I think we want to adopt, once we made that decision, we were on par. But literally, it took us... 10 years between the amount of money we had to save to finding the right program and making sure that we were prepared and waiting for those children. Once we finished, we had another four years to wait for those children. That's a long time. And um, that was interesting because that was a time when Russia was really open. Um, What is also important to remember is as you adopt those children, know their cultural um, background and Maybe the trauma they've gone through, because as you go through this child and grow with them, each adoptive child, and I can even say this for myself, I'm a domestic adopted child. Only after a week of my life, I was adopted into a wonderful family. And, you know, we all go through learning stages, even around age eight. Who am I? Am I loved? And am I accepted? What happened to my birth family? And does my my family now really love me. What does that mean? Um, Don't be afraid of those questions from your child. That's a normal process of learning and understanding self. And this is really, really important as they grow and know that there are going to be points where things can cycle back around or reoccur. 
there might be cognitive delays. That's really amazing. And I'm going to tell you, really hang in there with your teachers and your schools as you work through these things. Because again, it's that team environment telling that child, you know what? I know sometimes it's hard, but we're going to get through this together. You bet. As always, great advice from Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach, our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment. And we're talking about foster care. We love talking about adoption. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. stories and for the next half hour we'll be discussing a big topic the state of love on college campuses and i might add this probably applies to the millennial generation and maybe even to people in their early 30s but the focus here is on one particular college campus and one particular professor and we're fortunate to be joined by one of the nation's true experts and contrarians on the topic and that's Kerry Cronin, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, Kerry, first off, you're a philosopher. And, and so <laughs> love, by the way, love is not something that uh, philosophers ignore. Um, but, no. but dating, probably. And <laughs> I'm not sure Plato dug deep into dating. Um, <laughs> but how did you become such an expert? that students, your, your, the people and the kids you teach, mentor, coach, dubbed you the love doctor. Is it through oh the philosophy classes or something more? Tell us a little bit about this title you've earned at Boston College. Well, it is, it is kind of funny to me. I, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on this, but I love talking to students about their lives and about their choices and the ways uh, that they make their life decisions and their moral decisions. Um, I think it does, it has come, it, this whole thing, me being involved in this and talking to students about it, had emerged in the context of philosophy classes that I teach. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at texts that, in which we're thinking about friendship and, and relationships and the importance of that in a community and in a person's life and flourishing. And so we sort of get to these kinds of questions all the time. But, but it was conversations with students outside of class, actually, that led me to talk really specifically about dating and hookup culture and to find out what the heck is going on out there. And students over the years, probably, I've been probably talking to students about this for eight to ten years now very openly, and they have just been wonderful uh, in telling me, being very upfront about what, what dating and hookup culture is like in college, what, how they feel about it, what their anxieties, their fears, and their desires are. So it's been wonderful. I, everything I know, I've learned from them. And how did you stumble upon the specific star- talks you had about dating and relationships? How did you stumble upon this absence in their lives? Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I had a conversation with a group of students about, gosh, it had to be 10 years ago now. I had 
I had worked with some students on a student program, and we were going. We went out for ice cream after the program, just because it had gone well, and I was the facilitator of a discussion. It was a public discussion on on faith, actually, and and so we went out for ice cream afterwards. And they were all seniors. There were eight seniors, and we we were just talking about life and life after graduation and that sort of thing. And I, after talking about jobs and grad schools and different options. I, I said, you know, what about what about the people you're dating? And and I got a real blank stare from them all. And I thought, what's going on? And they said, Oh, we don't do that dating thing anymore where that's we just don't do that. That's not really done here. And I, I pressed them on it and after that I just started asking questions regularly about it. And students told me a lot uh, about hookup culture. I learned things that I, I thought I knew about. I learned things that I never knew about. I, I've, and I've thought about these things with students for years since. Well, and it's interestingly enough, you, you learned, I, I guess, that the hookup culture, just as years ago there were dating rules, Carrie, yeah. that the hookup yeah. culture itself had rules. <laughs> you know, what I heard from students a lot at the beginning was, well, you know, we don't, we don't really date. We would like to keep things much more casual. And that there was this idea that, that the hookup culture was the casual thing and, and that that was the easy thing. But when I, when I listened to them, I realized that, that it, it actually looks like it's super casual and that there are no rules, but there are lots of rules. And I say to students all the time, and they, and they all agree, you have to know the rules to participate in hookup culture. Everybody knows them, but nobody speaks about the rules. And um, and if you break the rules, you're out. You know, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. So, right. so you, they, they figure the rules out pretty quick. And, and, and the rules include, you know, so typically when I talk to students, I'll, I'll run through some, like, the top ten rules. You know, rules like don't talk about it while it's happening. Don't ask, what does this mean? You know, you've got to learn how to use texting. You know, don't stay over know where your, you know, know where your earrings are so you can grab them when you're leaving, know where your shoes are, you know, don't be awkward, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that, that are part and parcel of the hookup culture that, that students know and that they figure out the rules. But as I say to them, isn't it strange that we think there are no rules and that dating is so formal and everybody's so terrified of asking somebody out for a cup of coffee but to get involved in hookup culture looks like it's ordinary and casual and that there aren't rules, but, but we know that. We know there are. are. You know, I want, to play yeah. a, I want to play a clip from you. I'm going to hold on a response, and then we'll get the response on the other side of a break, Carrie. But it's, okay, a, sure. it's a clip Thanks. of you and a talk you gave to the Love and Fidelity Network. And then again, we'll, okay. ask, we'll, ask, we'll talk to you about it right after the break. I know that students at, at my university are incredibly ambitious, smart Wonderful, socially just, interested in other people until about Thursday afternoon, right? And then the nighttime culture sort of gets going, and suddenly it's, it's, a, different, it's a whole different scene. It's a whole different scene. And we're going to get to the other side of that scene in a bit. Uh, we're joined by Kerry Cronin. She's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she's known at the school as the love doctor. And it's because of some of the things he's been doing with the kids as it relates to their lives and to this thing that for millennium men and women did called dating. But the millennials, it turns out, are not doing much of. 
And I think this will interest every parent listening. It will certainly listen, uh, excite the millennials listening because this is their lives we're talking about. And not in judgment. None of that here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And more after this moment with the Love Doctor. This is Lee Habib, and the subject right now is dating, or the lack thereof. Something very new, actually, to millennials. They're, they're not doing it like we used to. Why? What's going on? Nobody knows about this better. No one's dug deeper into the subject. You don't know her, but now you do. And we're going to get to know her better over the coming months, and I hope years, because I don't think you can ever stop talking about a subject like this. We're talking to Kerry Cronin, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but is known as the love doctor by the students there who adore her for daring them to do something that people have been doing for centuries. And it's a little thing called dating. Where we last picked up, Kerry was describing this Thursday night culture. The kids are a certain kind of wonderful child all week long. And then, well, the werewolves of London come out, so to speak, and something starts to happen. Well, let's, uh, let's continue, uh, Kerry. Go from there. So that's funny. That's a great description of it. I, I often say to students, you know, the students I, I, I work with and live with here at, at Boston College are lovely. They are just hardworking, lovely young people, and they, they're eager to please, they're eager to work hard and compete, and they, they hold a door for you at 50 paces. It's exhausting how nice they are. <laughs> but then the nighttime culture is, is really aggressive. It's, it's very aggressive in terms of competitive drinking and the hookup culture is very aggressive and they feel it they're they're i I find and we we all know that college students in the united states now are are very much uh, affected by anxiety and stress and i think this has a lot to do with it um they're they're busy in their daytime lives but at night uh it's it's rough out there and they're trying to to find their way and find their work out important questions about who they are and what they want in their lives but there's not there isn't a culture that's helping them at all. No, and you know, it, it's always been tough to be 18. Uh, so let's not forget that. And, and it's hard for us at 30, 40, I'm, I'm in my 50s to remember. Sure. But my goodness, think about it just for a minute. And you'll wish you weren't 18 again after you think that's about true. it, actually. But for those of us who aren't aware, Carrie, can you paint a picture of what this, quote, nighttime hookup culture and scene looks like? And why exactly it's so appealing in the end, or maybe not appealing, but what draws these students into it? Sure. I think, you know, what, what happened on, in the, on the college campus scene, I think, and I, I'm mostly talking about 
uh, four-year residential colleges. Because I, I think at, at, when I go to schools and at which the populations are, uh, are not residential students, you don't, you don't see this as much. People are working part-time jobs or working to get through school, and they don't have time for this. But at four-year residential schools, students will often, you know, they, they come off of really stressful days, and the weekend, uh, on the weekends, they, they pre-game parties, which means, you know, they get drunk before they even go to parties, mostly because, for instance, our campus is, is mostly a dry campus, and so they are ostensibly not drinking on campus, right. but they, they have to find their ways to drink. So they go to parties, and they've got to get drunk fast. You know, the keg party script is you've got to get drunk fast before the RAs or the police come and break it up. So... So it's much more of a shots culture, if you will. You know, it used to be years ago, beer was the, the drink of choice for, you know, Animal House kind of that scenario. But now they're drinking hard liquor because that's easier to, to get in to, to a dorm. They're, it's, so they're drinking hard liquor fast, and women are drinking and are binge drinking at the same rates that men are. And so, so everybody's trashed. And 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 everybody's sort of hyper competitive because they these young people these millennials have been competing their whole lives. You, bet. you know this is this is definitely the organization kid that David Brooks described years ago. Yep. These students are they're highly programmed, they're highly competitive, highly achieving, and they want to achieve in their social lives too. And this script, the hookup script, yeah. has really become such a dominant script, and it's. It's associated with the keg parties. But it would be wrong to would it be wrong for me to assume also that uh, these high achievers are also in a sense conformists. I mean, they so want to get approval from their superiors, from their teachers, that in the end they'll conform to whatever the norm is in this respect. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because they've been taught, you know, they've been taught throughout their academic careers and their sports careers. You know, many of the students we have here were varsity athletes in high school. They're you know, they know how to how to to find out what the formula of success is and get themselves there. Yep. They know how to do it. And and hookup culture gives them it gives them check marks. You know, I've I've hooked up with this many people, I've hooked up with this person who I think is good looking, this person who other people want. You know, it's it gives them markers that they can achieve and and as I say to students, this is this is a movement to an exterior set of of Checkboxes, you know. This is, but but it has lots of ramifications you on bet. your interior life. You bet, lots of consequences. And we're talking, by the way, yeah. folks, with Kerry Cronin, and she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But on the side, she teaches a dating course there that's standing room only. The kids come from everywhere because she actually challenges them to leave this hookup culture and try and do something actually that turns out to be really daring, and that is to ask someone out on a date. Before we get into that, though, Kerry, what are the five types of hookups? And folks, parents, take notes. Talk to your kids about this. But what are they? <laughs> right. So over the years, I, uh, when I give talks to students, um, I find that what you have to do when you're talking to students about this so that you're not coming off in, in a really judgmental way and putting them in a, in a posture of, uh, in a defensive posture is you've got to use humor and you've got to, you've got to ask them to tell you what's going on. And what I've heard from students is are that there's lots of different reasons and types of hookups. And, and I often say to students, so there's the, there's the pure hookup, which is a one-time deal. You know, you just 
meet a person at a party or you, you know, and you hook up with them and that's that and you never hear from them again. Or maybe you see them on campus and you do this sort of campus look away, which is uh, what our students call it. You just kind of look in the other direction or pretend yep. you're looking on your phone. There's the regular hookup, which is, you know, you hooked up with somebody and then maybe you see them at a party the next week or the week after that and you kind of think, well, that worked out well and you get a look and you understand that that's going to happen again and maybe a couple of times. Then there's friends with benefits, which I always say to students, that's crazy. I don't, that's not what I do with my friends. And Aristotle <laughs> doesn't describe friendship that way. So no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> then there's, then there's, you know, there's, there's different uh, sort of types of hookup, hookups, like revenge hookups or, you know, or, or uh, after you break up, uh, reuniting with the old flame hookups. There's, you know, and actually there's many more than five. And the reason that I know there are many more than five is because every time I go to a school, students add to the list, which is scary. <laughs> but when you can get them to laugh about it, that's also when you can get them to start reflecting on it. When you, when you will laugh with them and say, isn't this a little strange and ridiculous and actually not what you really long for and what you really desire. Oh, you bet. Life. You know, I'm uh, a, I'm a Christian, but one of the books that influenced my life the most, actually, and weirdly, because I tell my friends this, and they go, "What?" But it was Martin Buber's "I, I and Thou," and it, it, it's always that space between the "I and Thou" that we can we can draw people in, and, and too often people of faith don't allow that space to not only other people of faith, but people not of faith. Uh, yeah, that's we, right. we have about a, a minute here. We're going to hold you over and do another segment, Carrie, because we just can't stop talking about this. <laughs> but what do you think okay. is the cause of this present culture full of hookups but absent of love? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's the deep question. That's the $64,000 question. I, I, think, I think people are looking for an easy way to, to try to, to put their toe into you know, the water and, and try to find love without any risk. So when I talk to students about dating, actually, it's, it ends up being mostly about courage, not love. Yeah, but, you know, in the end, what did Aristotle say about courage? It's the, it's the, it's the first requirement for all of the other virtues or Absolutely. something like that. And, and how can you have love without courage? We're going to hold here and we're going to continue this fascinating conversation about our kids, about ourselves in the end, uh, and about life. Because it, any of us who've ever said, I love you, to anybody and meant it, know they're the three hardest words to say. And if you don't hear them back, my goodness, this is the hardest thing in the world. And that's why you don't say it, because you're not sure you'll hear it back. We're talking to Carrie Cronin, and she is the doctor of love at Boston College, and she also happens to teach philosophy at Boston College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and more after this.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to Kerry Cronin. And she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she has an even more serious job there in some respects, and that's counseling and coaching her young students how to do a thing called date. And in the end, how to think about love, because we all think about it, and it's a scary thing. And Kerry, thanks so much for joining us for the hour here. But I wanted to read to you something from that Love and Fidelity Network interview that one girl had shared, because I think it's fascinating, and then we can pick up on this love theme. Here's what she said. She said, I have loved my time at Boston College. I have grown intellectually. I've made incredible friends. I've had amazing relationships in Boston. I have a job lined up. I'm a better sister, a better daughter, a better roommate, a better friend now. And then she said, quote, but the only area in my life in which I have not grown is the area Uh, of understanding of what I want out of love, what I want out of romance, what I understand about my own desire, my own passions. In this area, not only have I not developed, I think I have regressed. I think I am more scared, more unsure of myself, and I know myself on these things less than I did when I graduated from high school. My goodness, what a self-aware human being, what a beautiful human being to even write this. Carrie? Yeah, I remember that young woman very well. Um, she was actually part of a focus group that we ran here when we were trying to figure out uh, uh, some, some of the administrators here at Boston College tried to ran focus groups with students to try to figure out what was going on in terms of hookup culture and dating and relationships and uh, sexuality. And, and so we had a number of really wonderful students who came and shared, shared really deep and profound reflections like that with us. It was stunning to me. And when I, when I heard that young woman speak, I, honestly, I was heartbroken. Because, you know, we pride ourselves, especially here, this is a Jesuit university, we pride ourselves on educating the whole person. And, and to me, that's unacceptable. We're not doing our job if we're not helping students to navigate the most important parts of their lives. Yep. Uh, and that, that's just heartbreaking to me. You know, man is not an economic animal alone. And, you know, the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn leaves a Soviet gulag, comes to the United States, and everybody thinks he's going to hammer communism. But he does quite the opposite. He gives a lecture to everybody about the downsides of capitalism. He's no friend of communism, but he talks about the material and how the material can actually squelch out the spiritual and kill love. And no one was expecting that from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and why it's one of the great talks in American history. By the way, you can go to Great American Rhetoric and you can look up Solzhenitsyn and look under A, not S. That's how they put everything there. We want to play a clip for you, Kerry, uh, again from that a talk at the Love and Fidelity Network and pick up on this duty and responsibility of a Jesuit school, for goodness sake, teaching the whole person. I am terrified to start recognizing that universities and colleges today are places of great opportunity, great ideas, great ambition and achievement, but not great love. That between the ages of 18 and 22, or 23 if you really just need to take an extra year, (laughs) or 21 if you're like really excelling, like while you're here in college, this is a great time to fall in love, but you probably won't. And it's not because you don't want to. But it is because there is a culture that has sprung up, that has emerged, that's not going to support 
you finding a great love alongside finding great ideas, great opportunities, great conversations, great friendships, great ambitions, great, great accomplishments. To find a great love is also something we would, we would really like to help you with. You kind of have to do it on, yourself, by, on your own, but we're certainly not helping to scaffold that, a culture that would help you do that. I'm not sure what else you can add, but tell me what really <laughs> what dug you in there, and why do you, why did universities not talk about this, and what happened? No, oh, that's a great question too. I mean, I, I you know I think in the United States the the universities, colleges and universities have really moved away from the in loco parentis model, and so by and large, even though you know. Parents are entrusting, for, for a lot of money, parents are entrusting their, their young sons and daughters to our care. The, the general rule of thumb is stay out of their business. And, and there's something important in that insight. Mm-hmm. But what happened was I think we, we went to, to a far extreme on that. And, and I find that, that college students really want a lot of help. And they're not afraid of older adults uh, helping them with things. Uh, unlike pe- previous generations who didn't trust anybody over the age of 30, <laughs> right. I find that millennials crave conversations about their lives. They, they crave coaching, if you will. Um, I find that when I talk to uh, young male students, for instance, uh, as well as young female students, actually, when I think about it, they are really receptive to life coaching sort of attitudes. And they, they, the more that I talk to them about this, the more they want to meet with me and talk to, to me about this. And so they are really craving some help, but I think that we're assuming that they don't want any help and that they don't want to be told how to live. Well, as a matter of fact, they don't want us to be overly directive or overly moralizing or judgmental, but they want conversation. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to walk that fine line uh, in having conversations that, that are helpful but not intrusive, you know. But I think, um, I think faculty and administrators and staff members who, who are happy in their own lives and who are really, um, who have who have their own children, perhaps, uh, who are going through these kinds of things, they can be really helpful. But most people are sort of nervous about talking about these kinds of things. You know, I, I'd tell you a story. I was on a plane uh, about, probably about a, um, well over a year ago. An attractive young lady was sitting next to me, and I was writing a column and battling out a column about love. Um, and I was getting close to my little girl's birthday, and I had never known anything like that kind of love for a child. I'd known a love for, for a woman, finally, in my, and I, I had waited way too long to know that. Because I actually was a millennial before there were millennials in this respect. I was afraid of saying I love you to somebody. And I confess this in this column. I had never properly said it to a woman until I was 41 years old. Because I was afraid of the rejection. Who knows why? I, I don't know, but I didn't. And I write about this. And then I get to the part of the column where I'm typing. And I'm going to read you some of the words because I could feel her reading this. And as she was reading it, she, I could feel her crying as I was reading it. And I wrote, as I quoted a line from Julian Barnes, and Barnes, Barnes had said, I was 32 when we met and 62 when she died, speaking of his wife. She was the heart of my life and the life of my heart. You put two things together, Julian Barnes wrote, that have not been put together before, and the world has changed. And then I wrote, that's the power of love. 
The world is changed by it. Without love, the world is barren. The day my wife told me she was pregnant, my world changed again. In what is the greatest love song ever written about childbirth, the narrator in Bruce Springsteen's Living Proof says this, In his mother's arms, it was all the beauty I could take, like the missing words to some prayer that I could never make. It was and is all the beauty I can take, watching our daughter grow and laugh and play, the heart of my life, the life of my heart, the answer to a prayer I never even knew to pray. I turned around and she was weeping. And I started a conversation as deep as I'd ever had with another human being who was about to get married and was crying, she told me, because I asked her why. Her husband just told her she did not want to have kids. Her husband-to-be. On the back end, we're going to talk about what happened there, Kerry, and then talk to you about some of those same kinds of conversations I am sure you have had with these young people. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking for the hour about dating, about love, with the love doctor and a professor of philosophy at Boston College, Kerry Cronin. Habib, and you're listening to Alan Jackson, and it was a day when it was that simple. And it was never simple, so let's not go back and be too nostalgic. But back in the day, my parents, so many folks I know, the guy met a girl, he asked her out, and if it was right, they moved along and they started a family. No existential dread, no I'm not ready yet, no let's hook up. It just didn't exist. Or if it did, no one, it wasn't codified into the culture. And we're talking for the hour. With the doctor of love, who also happens to be the professor of philosophy at Boston College. And that's a, that's a nickname she's been given, by the way, on campus because of this class we're about to describe and discuss. Kerry Cronin joins us. Kerry, so you've, you've diagnosed the problem, you've gotten to know the kids, and you start a dating class. Talk about that. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't actually a dating class. I, I might, maybe I would get fired for that, but it was a, <laughs> it was a senior capstone seminar. You know, many colleges and universities have these uh, capstone seminars. It was a one-credit only, pass-fail seminar, once-a-week meeting with juniors and seniors to sort of discuss, you know, so what, what, 
what things have you discovered about yourself and life in your education? What questions do you still have? And we talked about sort of large things like the future and the role of money in your life and that sort of thing. And, and I, uh, I used to save two weeks to discuss relationships, friendships and romantic relationships. And, and after I had discovered that uh, this, the hookup culture was such a dominant script, I decided in one of these seminars that I would ask my students to go on a, tr- what, a traditional date. And I, uh, they all seemed pretty excited about that. The first group was about 15 students in a class. And so I said, oh, you know, could you, by the end of the semester, could, I want you to ask somebody out and go on a date. And so week after week, they came back and they kept talking about it. Oh, I don't know who to ask. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I kept wondering why this was so complicated. Well, we get to the end of the semester and only one of the 15 students had, had been able to do it which I thought was really shocking because, again, these are really bright, wonderful, beautiful students. And so the next semester, during the drop ad period, I said to them, you're going to have an assignment to go on a, to ask somebody on a date, go on a date and, and re- write a reflection about the date, and you have to do this assignment. I won't pass you if you don't. It was a requirement. <laughs> it was a requirement. <laughs> I had to good. make it a requirement because yep. I realized they would just keep talking about it and talking about it and never doing it. So... So I said, you could drop the class right now. I think three, three students dropped out right away, but three more came in. And so that second semester, everybody did it, but it was sort of a mess. They didn't know what they were doing. It, you know, we had lots of, lots of students would come in and tell funny stories about it. So by the third semester, I, I sort of wisened up. I, now, when I give this assignment, I give this assignment now in my uh, freshman, to my freshmen who take a great books class with me. Um, and I, I give them a, a sheet of paper that has instructions. I had to come up with a set of instructions because what I realized was that hookup culture had not only become the dominant social script, dating as a script had been completely lost. They didn't know how to do it. Yep. And so I, I needed to give them a set of instructions so they have to follow a set of my rules um, and on the back side of the, the sheet is a list of 50 inexpensive dates around Boston, you know, so that it doesn't have to be a burden. Yeah. And, uh, and so from there, we've gone in every semester. Uh, I give it now to freshmen because, you know, freshmen are, uh, they, my students this year will have this assignment in February. I, I make it an optional assignment. Uh, it's a, they'll get bonus points for it on an exam. And so they all jump on that. Uh, but Honestly, I've had students, I had students who, who started coming to that class where it was required, and students would say to me openly, in front of other students, I am taking this class so that you will make me go on a date. I want to do this. Wow, that's fascinating. And I would say, or you could just go on a date. You don't need to take a whole yeah. class just to do that. But it's so outside of the norm yep. that they need an excuse. Well, it's and interesting, I'm, Carrie. What's interesting is that they, it seems to me they're more at ease hooking up than just sure asking somebody out. And that's remarkable. I wanted to rip through some of these rules of yours, if you don't mind. Sure. And one yeah. of them, by the way, uh, like on the top of it all, is that obviously it's alcohol-free because we yeah. all know that what the students use alcohol for does not at all lend itself to getting to know someone. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It, it's yep. to not know them. That's why right. we do it and allow us to do things we wouldn't do but for the alcohol. 
So here were the nine rules. You must ask someone who you are legitimately interested in, and you must ask them in person. Texts can be sent to arrange a time and place, but the invitation must be extended face-to-face, too. The date should last between 60 and 90 minutes, no more, no less. It should be a daytime date. You must pay for a date is four, but you should spend no more than $10. Five, there is no alcohol. Six, no physical interaction. Seven, you are allowed to say that it is not for an assignment, that it is for an assignment. Eight, you can only divulge your plan with three people. Nine, when you ask the person, plan for your date no more than three days in advance. And ten, optional, submit a two-page reflection paper to Professor Cronin while this assignment is ungraded and it would be impossible to ensure its completion. It is a worthwhile endeavor. So go forth, students of Boston College, and find love. And if not love then at least a story. That is so delightful, and I'm just shocked that we are, we're, we've come to this, but thank you for doing it. What's the reaction now? You've gone from 15 students. How many students are interested in this now at Boston College? Oh, well, you know, that's the most fun. The, the most fun thing that I realized that, happened, um, that, that happens uh, is this. I actually am, in any given semester, I'm giving the dating assignment to maybe 25 students. But although I, I give a lecture on campus each year, uh, in, so, and usually there's three, three to 400 students at that lecture, and I say, if you're here, you have the dating assignment now. But the interesting thing is that, that I found that happened was not that just 15 or 25 or even 300 students went on dates. What happened was, as soon as the dating assignment was on a piece of paper, students would bring it back to their dorm rooms, their apartments. And, and here, most of the upper-class students live in apartment-style um, suites. And so they have six or eight roommates. And so what was happening was they were bringing it back to their apartments, and it was people were discussing it. It became such a buzz. Wow. and. And it really is. Everybody knows here, if students start to ask you out, you'll, they'll often hear someone respond, oh, is this a Cronin date? So, <laughs> and I always say to students, that's fine. That is Blame fun. it on me. Exactly. You know, because that'll make you feel a little less nervous. And it can be funny and something to talk about for the first five minutes of the date and laugh about. That's great. Make it a fun thing. That it, is. It, it's that, supposed to be fun. It is supposed to be fun, and it, it's delight. <laughs> it's a delight, and it's supposed to be scary, too. And think exactly. about how many scary things are fun. You know, we go up in, in gigantic slides and pummel on down and pay money for that. But that, that's dating. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you know, you, you have all these kids who've done these dates. Um, mm. Can you talk about some student reflections from their dates. Give us a couple of, you know, what have you oh, learned sure. from your students? What have you taught them and what have you learned from them? Oh, absolutely. I have learned so much from them. It's, it's, it's outrageous how much I have learned from them. I have, I've got uh, a locked file drawer full of these reflections. And, and one of the things that I want to point out that I do in the class too is they're not only giving me uh, their reflections after they've gone on a date, but we we find class time for them to talk about it with each other and tell the story of their dating. And what they mostly want to talk about is the story of the ask, that, that asking someone out in person is, is the big hurdle, and it's the thing that they love to, to retell. And what I have I've found in Reflections is some of my favorites are 
pieces of, refl- of student reflections have to do with how anxious they feel during the ask. I had a student uh, years ago who wrote um, this beautiful reflection on, on asking a guy out, and she said, she described it thus, she said, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating as I, appro- as I approached my target. And when, when I read it, I thought, uh-oh, wait a minute, what's going on? But these are the kinds of ways that they feel, and they, they write beautifully. But you know, you, do you know what's really going on there? I think what's going on there is it's the red badge of courage. People love yeah. to write about that which they overcome. This that's makes them exactly right. this makes them proud. And my goodness, that's better than hey, here's how I hooked up. And now it's one of those dark memoirs about how someone took too many pills and offed herself. Uh, that's Carrie, exactly right. I, I can't that's tell you. Right. You know, the, the, your point about stories is absolutely correct. One of the one of the things I say to students about hooking up is that that that's part of the game of hooking up, right? Is to you know on Sunday morning or Monday morning telling the story of who you hooked up with on the weekend and getting the points for it and the social status for yep, it. Yep. But telling the story of going on a date, students will say, "Wow, people came up to me and congratulated me for having asked somebody out, and people are impressed that I did that." They're experiencing their own bravery, their own courage, and as I often point out to them. You're for the first time asking for what it is you truly long for, what you, you really want, what you, you are nervous about, and what you think maybe this could really lead to something. And, and what we were almost encoded by God to, to ask for, too. Carrie right. Cronin, thank you so much for what you do. In fact, one couple even got married because of the yeah. work that this professor did. The Doctor of Love, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lee. It was really a